Uh, Exodus chapter 2, uh, as Bob mentioned, we, um, it is our normal practice. I'm going to take some liberty. Turn that down a little bit. Uh, it is our normal practice to alternate Old Testament, New Testament, to bounce back and forth between the two. On occasion, we'll um, stop for a, a topical series um, uh, we've done the Apostles' Creed. We've done, you know, obviously Advent series, things like that. Um, so, but our normal practice is to to skip back and forth, to bounce back and forth uh, between the old and the new. Um, and and Bob's right. The 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 beautiful picture that is of the the unity and the continuity of God's word uh, for us. Um, we just are reminded over and over again um, that. All Scripture is breathed out by God and and profitable, beneficial, useful uh, for us as His people. Uh, This morning, we're going to read all of Exodus 2, uh, which is why I had you stand for Acts Acts 7, which, by the way, um, if you were to go back and sort of dig around and like, what was that? Because there was a there was an hour, there was a we, there was some of that language in Acts 7. You read sort of the middle part of, of Stephen's recounting of Israel's history just before he was stoned. Um, and so that's the where that passage comes from. But uh, since that passage was short enough to stand, and since this one's just beyond that limit for me, uh, you may remain uh, seated as we read God's Word. Again, Exodus chapter 2. Uh, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And already you hear echoes of Stephen, right? I heard this already. Um, When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, 
he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to, wa- troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father rule, he said, how is it that you've come home so early, so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray and let's ask the Holy Spirit to help us as we open his word this morning. Let's pray. Uh, we pray, O oh Holy Spirit, it is your, uh, it's your function, it's your job, it's your responsibility within uh, the Godhead. Uh, having inspired these words, having preserved these words for us, uh, it's your responsibility uh, to be at work in them and through them and by them. Uh, your word is clear, and yet we, without your help, Uh, would not understand. So we pray that you would unstop ears, open hearts and minds to see and to know and to hear and to understand. And more importantly, would you use this, your word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. We ask all of this in his name and for his sake. Amen. You know, there's a there's a a sense in today's world, and and this may actually be sort of dawned on me after the fact. Uh, This might be... um, uh, kind of on steroids in this part of the country. Uh, but there's this sense in the world today, in evangelical world today, that if you decide you want to go into ministry, if you decide you want to start a church, if you decide that you're called to ministry and so therefore you're jumping in uh, head first, there's this sense in which nobody has the right to stop you. There's this sense in which, I mean, never mind that anyone should evaluate my gifts or my understanding of God's word or that I should have a time of testing. There's this general sense that if you decide you're going to start a church or you decide you are going to start some new ministry, then by all means, you should absolutely be encouraged to do so. It must be from God if that's what you want to do. So please go and do it. Never mind that that's not the pattern in Scripture. As we see in this passage, there's there's evidence, this passage unfolds for us, this pattern of time of testing and evaluation before ministry ever starts. That's Moses' experience. In fact, that's Jesus' 
own experience. Who didn't jump into ministry from day one. He's 30-ish years old before he begins his, uh, his earthly ministry of saving God's people, teaching, instructing, etc. Notice first in Exodus 2 that God protects His deliverer-to-be. You know, sometimes God mocks His enemies. Um, 1 Kings 18 and the prophets of Baal sort of come to mind. There are times in Scripture when when, when God's, the, the simplicity, the ease with which God dispatches with those who would oppose God and His kingdom is decidedly, intentionally funny. And we see some of that even in this passage. Pharaoh is committed to the destru- destruction, excuse me, the destruction of God's people. He's committed to making sure that they are oppressed and kept down. They can't grow. They can't keep adding to their number. Uh, life and in building the pyramids is going to be as difficult and oppressive as it can possibly be. And so they make life difficult for Israel. And, and at this point, he's already commanded, you know, by the way, midwives kill the sons when they're born. When that didn't work, okay, now it's time to take the sons and throw them in the Nile River. Like that's how we're going to slow the growth of God's chosen people. By, by throwing sons born to the Hebrews into the river. Moses' parents, um, they hide him, they, they, they keep him hidden for three months at home. I don't know how you... I mean, those of you that have had kids, how do you hide a two-month-old? I mean, how is it that a two-month-old is somehow quiet enough that you can hide them and keep them from other people discovering that they exist uh, and, and suddenly at three months? I, I don't know why that time frame matters. They hid him as long as they could until finally they decided we... We can't keep him a secret any longer. And, and rather than throw him into the river, they decided to, to put him in a basket. And they, they covered with this basket with tar, pitch, to, to make it waterproof. Let's, let's make sure that when we set said basket in the river among the, the tall grass along the edge of the Nile, that it won't, you know, fill up with water and sink. We're, we're making a boat out of this basket. In fact, the word used here for basket is only used one other time in the whole Bible. And it just so happens that it's used in Genesis in relation to the basket that Noah built. It's the exact same word. And so what you find is already, we, we, we pointed this out last week, and, and you don't want to keep beating the same horse over and over again, except that it seems to come up over and over again. You can't understand Exodus without understanding Genesis. And there's this connection even between Moses and Noah. And already you see that both men are delivered through a watery would-be grave if it weren't for God, God's providence at work 
in their lives. God sends a, a flood uh, to, to be judgment for sin and He provides for Noah and his family to be delivered from that watery grave, that watery judgment. Pharaoh wants the water of the Nile to be judgment on God's people and the means by which God's people are destroyed. And yet, God preserves Moses through a different, a little smaller ark. A smaller basket. A basket for one rather than for eight plus critters. I want you to notice too, you know, we have this notion, I think we we instinctively teach our children. I mean, and this, this, this story, this chapter is known. It's well known by most everybody in the room. I, I think we have this habit of teaching our children that, that um, Moses' mom hid him in the grass. That's not exactly the case because she clearly wants him found. She doesn't want to hide him and keep him from people. That's why the daughter sticks around. That's why she stays to kind of see what's going to happen. They actually are hoping that someone will come along and take him and have compassion on him. So she puts him among the reeds, the the tall grass. Notice verse 3. She put the child in the basket, placed it among the reeds by the riverbank, not exactly hiding him from others to find. And of course, wouldn't you know, and this is where the mockery begins. Pharaoh wants Israel destroyed. The midwives have already disobeyed him. They were Hebrews, probably. Now his daughter decides, you know what, dad? I'm not doing that either. She knows that this is one of the Hebrews' sons, and so she takes him for her own. She decides, I'm going to spare him, preserve him, save him, and, and, and provide for him and raise him as my own child. Pharaoh, in his, in his own house, is one of the very boys being raised that he wanted destroyed. Not only that, but Pharaoh's daughter says, look, girl, yes, go find someone who can nurse this child. And so she went and got, you know, Moses' mom. And, and Pharaoh's daughter paid her to do the very thing she would have wanted to do more than anything in the whole wide world. To do the very thing she would have done had it not been for this Crazy, scary law from Pharaoh. And already the Hebrews are plundering the Egyptians. Moses has just been born. He's only three months old. And already the Israelites are gaining financially from Pharaoh's own house. There's already this picture of the Israelites plundering the Egyptians. And at a certain age, Moses goes to live with Pharaoh's daughter. She's the one that gives him the name Moses, which in Hebrew sounds like being drawn out of the water. 
In Egyptian, it means something different. You know, Tutmos? Like, there are Egyptian pharaohs. It means son of. Moses means son of. So, Tutmos is the son of Tut. Moses' name is son of. But notice there's no, there's no name. There's no association with him. He's the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Sort of. He's the son of his Hebrew parents. Certainly biologically, but now he's being raised by Pharaoh's daughter. And notice too that so far, in fact, it's not until we get to Midian that anybody else in this chapter has a name. You assume that that's Miriam who went and got her mom to nurse, but we aren't, it doesn't say that in Exodus 2. Moses' parents, we're going to get their names eventually, but we don't have them yet. Pharaoh's daughter, we don't have her name either. The only name we know is Moses. And so there's this, this combination of, in Hebrew, yes, he was drawn out of the water. In, in Egyptian, we kind of don't know who his, his parents are. He's the son of whom? We don't, we don't know. Moses grew up knowing he was an, a Hebrew. He, he's trained, and, and you saw this. Stephen understood this. Stephen explained all the, the training that, that Moses would have gotten in the, the, leading, um, the, the leading country, the leading world power of the day. He had everything at his disposal. Uh, he could learn anything and everything there was to possibly learn. But he grows up knowing that he is a Hebrew. Yes, he's being raised as a son of, of Pharaoh's daughter. He'll be clean shaven. The, the daughters at the well in Midian are going to think he's an Egyptian. And yet, he's sort of raised in both worlds, if you will. And at the end of Exodus 1, we're looking for a deliverer. At the end of Exodus 1, we're looking for someone to set Israel free from the, the pain and the destruction and, and the agony and the oppression of life in Egypt. And in Exodus 2, God preserves that deliverer, that deliverer to be through even the most dangerous looking conditions. Did you notice something that's not there? Let me ask that differently. Did you notice someone who's not there? We mentioned this last week, and so I won't belabor it too much, but notice that so far it sounds like Moses is writing, as the, the, the author of Exodus, he's writing simply a history account. So far, God hasn't appeared at all he's not got credit for anything that he has been doing just because god's not mentioned doesn't mean god's not at work we need that even in our own lives right those times when our eyes tell us that god has forgotten me only to remember that's right god doesn't ever forget us as we'll see more clearly at the end of the chapter. 
don't miss the irony here. Don't miss the, the, the mockery, if you will. Pharaoh's authority and his power have been challenged by the midwives, by his own daughter. He thought he could bring an end to God's people. And God used his own rules against him. Throw the kids in the river? Okay, I'll put him in the river in a basket. And he's going to be raised in your own house, Pharaoh. God will not be mocked. But he will absolutely mock the pride of those who oppose him and his people. God protects his deliverer to be. Sorry, I, had, I swapped this, these words in my outline and I think I've used them interchangeably. I didn't go back and change it everywhere. God protects his deliverer to be. Second, God preserves his deliverer to be. Uh, time passes. In verse 11, we're told one day Moses had grown up. Stephen tells us he was 40. Exodus 2 does not tell us at this point that he was 40. His life seems to divide into three sort of 40-year segments. Moses goes out and, and wants to check on his people. Again, he knows he's a Hebrew. He knows he's not an Egyptian. He knows he identifies with God's chosen people. And twice we're told in verse 11 that they are his people. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And you can't help but notice that Moses thought that protecting his fellow Hebrew by lethal force against this Egyptian who's mistreating uh, Moses' brother, uh, at least fellow Hebrew, his people. He thought that would remain a secret. He looks around. He kills this Egyptian. He buries him in the sand. He's convinced nobody saw him. He's convinced this is going to remain a secret and nobody is ever going to say a word. Well, then how did the Hebrew men the next day know what Moses had done. How did word ultimately get to Pharaoh so that he might know what Moses had done? There's only one possible answer. And it's the Hebrew man that Moses delivered. He obviously went around talking. He went around telling the story. He went, out, he went around telling on Moses, not knowing that that's what he was doing perhaps. And so in verses 13 and 14, we have these Israelites fighting each other. And he steps in to intervene, to put an end to the fight. He says, look, your family, you're, you're the same house. You're, you're Israelites. You're, you're together in this. Why are you fighting? And the fact that they knew shocked Moses. And so Moses ultimately had to run away. His own people didn't trust him. The Egyptians knew the story and Pharaoh, verse 15, wanted him dead. 
In fact, the, the two men, Moses steps in to put an end to an argument, to a fight between two Hebrew men, and they turn on him and say, what gives you the right? Who put you in charge of us? Who made you the judge? Who made you the arbiter of our argument? And so Moses ran away. He had no place to live. He couldn't stay where he was. There was the, the danger from his own people who now didn't trust him. There's the danger from Pharaoh and the Egyptians who want him dead. He was a man without a country, even in the only place he'd ever known for the first 40 years of his life. You know, there's a there's a pattern here for Moses, and, and we'll see this over and over again uh, throughout the rest of his life, certainly throughout the book of Exodus. Anytime Moses is delivering the Israelites out of the hand of an opponent, the Israelites are happy with him. As soon as he judges between them within the household of God, they have no interest in him whatsoever. They, they're fine with Moses as long as he's going to spare them from the Egyptians. But if he's going to step in and, and adjudicate the case between two Hebrew men, well, now, now you've gone too far. Now you're sticking your nose in uh, to business that it ought not belong in. Like we, this happens, unfortunately, even in the church today. We're happy to have... Leaders who will tell outsiders that they're wrong, but as soon as they say we're wrong, we kind of don't think they have that right. We kind of don't think they belong. That We want to look at them and say, who put you in charge? Just as Moses faced in his day. The reality is, Moses... Fleeing to Midian is really part of a plan to continue his training, to protect him from, from danger and from death. And from, for that matter, from, from the, the fear and oppression of the Egyptians and even from his own people. God preserves his deliverer to be. God protects his deliverer to be. Third, God prepares his deliverer to be. Moses runs away. He flees to Midian. He flees down south. Uh, the local well, and, and this is a pattern, we find this over and over again. We've already seen where, where um, Abraham's descendants have found their wives at a well. We'll find Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman at a well. It's normal that you go out to the well to collect water for the household, to feed the, the flocks, the sheep. Uh, what have you uh, rule the the Midianite priest uh, has seven daughters. They go out to the well and it seems to be that the pattern is every time they go these 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 ruffian outlaw shepherd types um, wait for them to draw the water, fill up the troughs and then they come in and push the girls away and they feed their animals. So they're too lazy to draw the water. They steal the the water from these ladies and then. And then they have to do it all over again because Rule seems surprised that they got home as soon as they did. Moses 
is their deliverer. Moses steps in and says, hold on a second. You guys are not going to do this to these girls. You're not. And notice this time he doesn't kill them. Moses is growing in grace. Already Moses is growing in grace bit by bit. His sanctification is slowly sort of taking over in his life. He manages not to kill these shepherd oppressor types. But Moses is doing exactly what Moses is supposed to do. To deliver people from oppression. To deliver people from from the evil, from the wicked, from oppressors. And these girls get home and rule is flabbergasted. How dare you not extend hospitality to someone who delivers you from mean, horrible shepherd people. Uh, and, and you sort of get this picture. Rule's not even a believer. He's a polytheist. He's, he's not a Hebrew. And yet he's already teaching us, you know, we probably as the church probably ought to out-hospitalitize the world around us. We probably ought to show, yes, that's a real word. If you don't believe me, you don't need to look it up. I promise. It's a, we should out-hospitalitize the people around us. We should be a place that welcomes outsiders and serves strangers. And it's there in Midian that Moses marries Zipporah. They have a son. They name him Gershom. And again, there's a multiple pun in this name. It comes from the verb to drive away which is exactly what Moses did to those mean shepherd people. He drove them away from Rule's seven daughters. But it also means a sojourner or stranger uh, in a foreign land. And Moses is a stranger. He's an alien in Midian. But he was also a stranger and an alien in Egypt. The reality is, Moses doesn't know what, it liked, what it's like to not be a stranger or an alien. He's, he lives the first 80 years of his life in a world that is not his own. Did we not just finish 1 Peter? That reminded us over and over again that we're strangers and aliens in this world. And we belong to a world that is yet to come. Perhaps we should all change our name to Gershom. But during this time, Moses is being prepared to be the deliverer for God's people. That's why he's in Midian. That's why he lives 40 years there. You know, throughout the Bible, the number 40 is, um, is, a, is a number of testing and of, of trial and um, 40 days and nights of rain. Uh, Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, his temptation. Now, Moses, 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian. All his training in Egypt, he's prepared in, in politics and in, in civil government and in science and in astronomy and who knows what else. Language and business and public policy. It, it makes for... 
uh, a go-between that he will be one day. Here he spends 40 years as a shepherd. Because he's about to spend the next 40 years of his life with God's people who are sheep. Moses is being prepared to be that deliverer. He's going to spend the next 40 years of his life exercising the things he learned the first 80 years of his life. God preserves, God protects, God prepares his deliverer to be, and then finally God promises his deliverance. I hope I'm not the only one, and I maybe should have led with, I'm not one that does this. I should have turned it around, made you feel bad. Uh, there, there are times when, and, and, and you can, well, there are times when I will get up from the chair and I'll walk into the kitchen or I'll walk into my bedroom. And I don't know why. Like I've already forgotten what I come in here for. Like, what, why did that remind, like, literally, you kind of stop and retrace your steps and have to rethink, now, what was I doing in there that would have made me get up? We forget things. We forget very recent things sometimes. We certainly forget long-term things, but we forget things. You do realize that God doesn't forget. That just because we, re- see, when we remember we remember something that wasn't there and, and had slipped our minds and was gone and, and we don't know where it went. And then suddenly it jumped back into our minds again. When we're told that God remembered, that word in the Bible is an action word. When God remembers, it doesn't mean, oh, that's right, I was coming to get food for the dogs. He means... I'm about to do something. When God remembers in the Bible, there's always a significant action following right on the heels of it. And we find in at the end of Exodus 2, God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And he saw the people of Israel. And God knew. Probably one of my favorite chapter endings in all of Scripture is these last three verses. The way you repeat over and over again, their their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard. You know, in Hebrew, you don't need the, the... Um, The subject, you can leave the subject out because it's sort of given in the verb. And so you don't always need that. But here you get it repeated over and over again to make sure we know God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. And there's a part of you that thinks, knew what? Like we don't say, I knew, unless it's very clear what we mean that we knew. God knew the plight of his people. God remembered his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he saw the pain and the plight that his people were going through. And he knew. And it's intimate knowledge. God's remembering is an active remembering. 
He's never been absent. He really hasn't shown up at all until now in this chapter. But that doesn't mean he wasn't there. That doesn't mean he wasn't orchestrating the events of Moses' life to prepare him for this. For what he tells us in verses 23 to 25. You and I would do well to remember this reality. When we examine our lives with our eyes, it can look like God has forgotten. When we examine our lives with our physical senses, it can feel like, it can seem like God has actually forgotten. And yet, what we find is that God is at work through the very ordinary, mundane events of life to prepare His people for their service. Some of those events are painful. Some are glorious. Some are wonderful. Some are wicked. But they're all used by God to accomplish His purpose. Let me make several applications from this passage. Actually, five applications. The first two, I promise, will be short because we've said them already. First, the apparent absence of God is not the same thing as the absence of God. We would do well to know that in our own lives. Second application, God's timing is not our timing. We mentioned this last week. We want Chick-fil-A drive through sanctification. We want Chick-fil-A drive through God accomplishing His purposes Moses spends two-thirds of his life, 80 of his 120 years, preparing for what he's only going to do for 40. God's timing is not our timing. A third application from this passage. There are some of you who might think from time to time, there's no way God could save someone like me. You don't know what I've done. Or, okay, even if I grant that God can save me, I'm pretty sure He can't actually use me in His kingdom because you don't know what I've done. Moses is a murderer. And God's prepared, chosen deliverer of His people. David, a man after God's own heart, also a murderer. Here's the thing. God uses broken, messed up people to accomplish His purposes. Don't let your brokenness decide for you, I'm no use in the kingdom. That's exactly what God wants. Is people relying and dependent on Him and on Christ rather than ourselves. A fourth application. Um, I've got to read Hebrews 11, verses 24 to 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to 
the reward. Moses had all of the greatest treasures at his fingertips and said, you know what? Compared to Christ, compared to God's promised deliverance and redemption, compared to being associated with God's people, those riches, all the great riches and wisdom and smarts and science books and all the cool stuff Egypt had, those things were nothing compared to Christ. He chose to be identified with the outcast, the poor, the oppressed, the people of God, rather than to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. As believers, this world has nothing for us, even though this world has everything. If I can quote from Cademan's call, those of you who would remember them. A fifth application. Finally, Moses is a picture of Jesus. And there's a a pattern to Jesus' life that's similar to Moses. He too comes out of Egypt. He too is is going to be prepared, spend the first 30 years of his life being prepared to be the deliverer of God's people. Moses ultimately gets God's people out of Egypt. But only Jesus can save God's people from sin. Only Jesus can give us the eternal reward that is greater than the promised land to which Moses will lead his people. Only Christ can give us heaven. If you're not trusting in him and him alone for your salvation, let me urge you, encourage you to do that even today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of delayed service in your kingdom. That you take the time you desire to prepare your people for service. We thank you that you have preserved and protected and prepared Moses to deliver your people out of Egypt. And we pray that we would be drawn to Christ who delivers us from sin. And Father, may it be that we, as your people, would choose to be numbered with your people rather than with the the great wealth and treasures of this world. All to the honor and glory of Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.